0: Like if you weren't ever going to look at memory, because you have a lot of attacks that they're only manifested within memory. Like some attackers are just not interested in persistence. If you didn't have memory, like you'd have nothing. Like you wouldn't even know that there was anything going on on that particular machine.
1: We don't talk about them, we talk with them. Welcome to Unallocated Space, hosted by Pod... <laughs> the podcast.
2: You got further this time than... <laughs> I
1: did. I did. Eventually, I'll get, like, all the way through it. All right. Here we go Yes. Welcome to Unallocated Space by Arcpoint Forensics. I'm your host, Amy Mould, and I'm joined with Jared Rittenberg, my co-host. We are joined this week with Jamie Levy to talk about memory forensics and how she got started in the industry. Turn over to Jared.
2: Hey, thanks, Amy. Uh, yeah, my name's Jared, and today I'm happy to introduce Jamie Levy. She is a senior research researcher developer of the volatility framework. She is also the director of R&D at Huntress. Prior to this, Jamie was the director of EDR content at Tanium, where she helped build out digital forensics content for the threat response module, as well as various other security and digital forensics related R&D efforts. She has worked on various R&D projects and forensics cases while previously working at Guidance Software, Verizon TerraMark, and secure works. Jamie has taught classes in computer forensics and computer science at Queens College and John Jay College. And she has a master's in forensics computing from John Jay College and is an avid contributor to the open source computer forensics community. Jamie has authored peer reviewed conference publications and presented at many conferences on the topics of memory, network, and malware analysis. Jamie is a well-respected member of the digital forensics community, sits on the board of directors for the Volatility Foundation and has served on the program committee for such conferences as DFRWS, B-Sides New York City, and IWCMC Security Conference, among others. Jamie is also a trainer on the topics of digital forensics and incident response, as well as memory forensics. Jamie, it's great to have you. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you, it's great being here.
1: So we always try to ask everybody to get our audience a little uh, familiar with your background and, and how you got into the community. So can you kind of tell us about the path leading into the DFIR community?
0: Uh, Yeah, so um, I guess it was kind of a long, crazy journey, uh, starting an undergrad. Um, So when I was an undergraduate in computer science, I took some classes in neural networking. And uh, as part of that class, we had to present on uh, some kind of a program that uses neural networking, um, uh, basically something that's used uh, in real life. And so I came across this program, which was called Catch. It was computer aided tracking and characterization of homicides. And basically what they were doing was they were using neural networks to group uh, different types of homicides together to see whether or not they could catch serial killers. And I think it was at a point in time when uh, the different jurisdictions were just starting to kind of like open up more and like share details. And so it was, it was basically trying to uh, to pattern these things and see whether or not there were homicides that were related. Um, I was very fascinated by that and uh, reached out to the people that um, that basically wrote the program and asked them for any details that they could give. Of course, they you know obviously they couldn't uh, give the program or anything like that or any demos of it, but uh, I got enough information that I was able to build something that was kind of similar to that, you know, but <laughs> much smaller scale. Um, and so that was what I had presented to the class. Uh, but as, as I was progressing, you know, through my studies, I was like, Oh, you know, I really like this whole crime element. Like, wouldn't it be nice if there was something related to computers, right? That had this crime element to it. And, uh, so At the time that I graduated, it was like the dot com boom. I couldn't really crash, actually. And I couldn't really find a job. And so I decided to go to grad school. I was in a Ph.D. program and I was learning about, uh, you know, artificial intelligence and robotics and stuff like that. Um, And I couldn't really figure out like what I wanted to do still. And at the time uh, that I was there, uh, all of a sudden there was a master's program that started at John Jay College, which was over uh, computer forensics, and so I was like, "Oh, this is what I'm doing." And I just left the PhD program, went straight to there, uh, started working on my on my master's, and uh, yeah, it's just from there. I, I mean, it was just like straight ahead. Like I started to get really uh curious about things finding open source communities at the time there was um the coroner's toolkit uh which i was playing around with and Kit was becoming a thing and autopsy and so i was playing a lot with that modifying things um we were uh creating like a malware jig which what we called it a malware jig but it was a sandbox basically to do like differentials um you know before and after malware and So the next thing is like, well, does it have some effect on memory, right? And at the time there was like this uh, tool called PT Finder, uh, which would allow you to uh, get the process execution, mutexes and some other things from memory. And so we were using that tool and then slowly after that, or slightly after that volatility was released. And so I started, Uh, trying to figure out like how can we use that and there was an IRC channel and I started talking to people on there and I just started to get more and more involved in in that project and that that's basically how I ended up in into this and uh, got a job at guidance software and the rest is all history Um,
1: wow yeah that's always interesting to see how people get like I don't know, digital forensics just grabs hold of them and pulls them in. (laughs) That was my experience. So I started out in criminology in my undergrad and the cybersecurity um, and digital forensic advisor just pulled me in and just gave me like a briefing of what the program was. And I was like, yes, I want to do this. This sounds awesome. I was like, I love this stuff. So thank you for sharing that. especially
2: jumping into like memory analysis uh, because that was pretty new, certainly, I mean, a decade ago, um, in the, I guess the timeline of development, cause you mentioned some of these tools had come out, you know, while you were doing some of your research and kind of, you know, getting into it, where do you think we are in the scheme of, of, um, like memory forensics, um, for ne- like 10 years ago versus let's say, you know, 30 years down the road, is it still very much in its infancy? Like, you know, like the first ten percent, um, with a lot of development that needs to happen, or do we have a pretty robust set of tools now that we, um, you know, are kind of like moving forward to uh, gradually, you know, increase and, um, in, you know, implement new capabilities that way? Uh,
0: I think we're in a pretty good spot right now. I mean, like we've we've done a lot of work with volatility. Like we've been able to uh, ex- finally, like we have like a nice framework where we can easily extend it to. Uh, to basically help uh analyze newer operating systems as they occur and updates and whatnot, and uh there's still a lot of artifacts that we have to flesh out um there's and every time there's there's new uh, techniques from attackers and whatnot that I think like I would say it's like more than halfway you know. Done. It it definitely isn't like the archaic, like you know, strings and Researches. hex and whatever that we had to do. Yeah, <laughs> before. Um, and I do remember those those times, like trying to figure out, like you know, how to, what's actually there, and and people were just like you know, dumping strings, and for a lot of things, it was it was useful. Though I mean, like if you're just looking for like chats or you know, uh passwords or things like that, like like you know, strings was decent enough uh to get that information but um but yeah i mean there still are challenges obviously um you know uh especially like with the acquisition side um because at the time you know memory was was easier to access like at, at the at the time that i was interested in it like you could you didn't even really need a driver like to to access it i mean like it was uh i mean it was basically much easier to access. Like there was like a exposed device and you didn't need to um, have like uh, the extra privileges or whatever to get to it. And, and then, you know, eventually they closed that off and you needed a driver and, um, and then, uh, you know, just more and more, like they just keep, you know, making it more difficult. Things will get, you know, bricked if you're not careful. So now, now you have to have like more commercial tools to acquire memory, like all the free tools that, that were available like back then don't work um, mm-hmm. anymore. And so I think like that's, that's like probably the the hardest part about memory or like what makes it a little bit less accessible maybe um, is, is getting the commercial tools, um,
2: but, yeah, but even there, then.
0: I, I Were there oh, any sorry.
2: significant, um, I guess like OS updates or like um, mile markers for like operating system releases that made it that you remember where, it like, incrementally made it exceptionally more difficult to to work with forensics?
0: Yeah, Windows 10, uh, like, it, it often has, like, you know, updates that make things, you know, take a step back, and then you're like, okay, you know, we have to figure out, like, how they re-implemented this thing or, or you know, make these new... Uh, to, uh, symbols to like be able to reconstruct the memory and and so yeah they were often changing things with Windows 10 and it was just making it difficult like where you'd have to sit down and like figure out okay how did they how did they make this uh, what, what did this update do that why now all of a sudden something doesn't work anymore um, but there's that and then also you know Apple has like uh, updates all the time uh, for the Mac OS uh machines and so you have to make new symbols for that and it's it's not as easy to to make the symbols um for that machine um for for our macOS than it is for windows and yeah it's just it's just a pain like with every update you have to make new symbols because things will be off a little bit or things won't work as well and I think that's like we don't have like a clear-cut way to do that for like Uh, the average user, I guess, Um, you know, we're, the team releases symbols uh, for macOS at at different times, but it's not like something that most people can actually do on their own, unfortunately.
1: I feel like as soon as you found your groove, another update comes
2: out. off. Yeah. do they tend to yeah are there like lulls in the updates that don't really have much of an impact? and it's like something you know got them fired up and they decide to focus on it and then all of a sudden, like you know, a year later, they've got all these updates and just kind of throws everything out or is it pretty consistent like they're always kind of focused on it um, with their you know consistent consistency in updates?
0: I, I don't know if it's if it's consistent. I mean, like even like sometimes they'll hot there'll be updates and um and it's not like enough of a difference that, you know, the older profiles will still work uh, or work enough to like get, you know, whatever information you need. Uh, and then sometimes they'll have like a major update where things, where the offsets are off just a little bit. So like, you know, the processes don't work or, or you can't really get much out of, uh, out of that memory sample. Um, so yeah, it really, it's inconsistent as far as I can tell, like uh, how those updates go.
1: Do you create your own samples, or do you go to a repository and pull those down? Where do you find them?
0: Oh, memory samples. Yeah, I create my mm-hmm. own. Uh, the easiest way. I mean, like for the stuff that I do, I use virtual machines, and so um, you know, you just have the memory sample right there. Uh, but but yeah, like on your on your regular machines, like the only thing that I would really recommend using to capture memory on across all different operating systems would be this uh, Surge tool that's uh, offered by Vilexity. Um Basically they have a whole team of developers that basically focus only on that tool and they make sure, you know, they test it very well they make sure that it's not gonna crash your machines or anything like that. And so that's really the only tool that I could recommend. Like if you're concerned about um, crashing your machine which obviously is like the worst thing that can happen to you when you're trying to collect memory yeah i would
1: imagine a lot of people probably (laughs) find that challenging and also in the same freak out mode when it happens so um
2: yeah Um, so kind of just stepping back a little bit for people that might not be quite as familiar with memory forensics and how that works can you talk just at a real like rudimentary level how it works what symbols tables are and and um like just kind of generally what the process is for going through and parsing um memory
0: yeah so um basically, uh, you know, you have your memory dump, which could be like from the virtual machine uh, where you, you're running it and then you pause it. And then there's uh, like a file that has the contents of the memory, for instance, or if you run a tool and it dumps this out to a file, uh, then you want to rebuild uh, the, um, the, the actual status of that memory. Um, so when you run volatility on this, Volatility 3 actually, like for Windows machines, will basically build the symbol table that you need on the fly. How it does this is um, it looks through the memory sample, figures out which uh, operating system it's looking at, and then it will pull down uh, these PDB files from the Microsoft server, um, which is used for like debug. Uh, if you're familiar with that. So that's a debugger that you can use uh, from Microsoft to debug things on the Windows side. Um, these PDB files have all the symbols that you need uh, in order to reconstruct the uh, memory or whatever it is that you're looking at. Um, it will parse those those PDB files, uh, create the symbol table and caches that and then it's able to rebuild the um, the memory sample from there. Usually the first thing that it's doing is looking for like the process uh, information because a lot of things are built off of those process lists. Um, So, uh, but once you have that simple table, like you can basically look at anything else uh, within the memory. Um, It's rebuilding everything from uh, the virtual memory also. So uh, it's able to figure out like where things are because we have, virtual memory, we have the physical memory. And physical memory uh, doesn't have everything in contiguous space because the virtual memory has stuff broken up uh, all across uh, physical space. So it does all those address translations, figures out where the data is and pulls that out um, depending on whatever it is that you're doing, like a process list or uh, UTXs or um, or if you're looking for, like, uh, network connections, like it might be some kind of a scanning, like looking at different pages with, like, diff- like, a certain marker that tells you that this is where the network information is or whatever, you know, it's scanning for, and we'll output it there. Um, but, but it's, uh, it's very uh, useful because it's trying to look at things the way that the operating system sees it and it's using the objects that we would normally use from uh, when we're programming and in order to rebuild uh, all of that information so you basically have these objects with you know the pointers or whatever members they have and then you're just able to interact with them and print out things as you need them. So
1: for people who are just
0: sense.
1: yeah no it does for people that are just starting out and like adding on to that, what are some resources? Uh, I know that you've provided a ton of resources in the community and publications, including this this lovely book here, which is our <laughs> developer's best friend. Let me just tell you, we're going to have to send this book to you so you can sign it for him. He's in love with it. Um, but oh, yeah. uh, what are some other resources or where should people go if they're just getting started to kind of like, you know, get their feet wet in memory
0: forensics? Oh, yeah. Um, So on the uh, older volatility project on GitHub, we have a wiki that uh, contains information about all of these different publications that were memory forensics related. Uh, Some of them are, are blog posts from various people in the community, like whether look at malware samples or other things of interest and kind of just go through step by step, like what they did with volatility to, to get the information. Uh, Some of them are also like academic uh, papers and whatnot. It's just a collection of various things that we found um, over the years. And um, so there's that Uh, also following certain people on Twitter, like if you want to be on social media. So obviously the developers of volatility and some other people uh, that have done some interesting uh work in the space space so i should probably like make a list of people that <laughs> have actually contributed or something but um but yeah there's there's definitely there's actually uh we also have a, a Slack channel uh for for volatility so that that is also a good resource we used to have an IRC channel um it's kind of defunct but now uh on slack like there's a lot of people that talk about uh, volatility and memory forensics in general uh, over there.
1: What is the Slack channel name?
0: Oh, uh, what, oh, what's the name? Um, I'll have to find it and give it to you. If you could put it all like right. in the comments or something, cause yeah, we'll, uh, we'll
1: we'll include it in the description. All the different resources that you're throwing out there.
0: Okay. Yeah, I think it's on the GitHub repository, like somewhere. There's like a link to to go to the Slack channel, or like in the README file. Um, yeah, okay. it, there should be like a link somewhere, but I, I just offhand, I, I don't remember what it is. Okay, cool. So um,
1: yeah, that's a ton of resources that you have provided back and like that you contribute
0: to. What makes you keep giving back to the community? I think it's uh, a lot to do with having been in academia, having been a poor student and just like, you know, when you're trying to get started and, open source is like really your friend you know like all of these tools that are open source and you can just like tweak them and and extend them and and I think that just really made me want to just give back a lot you know I I was really uh, trying to get involved in those different projects and trying to get help people get started and I know I, I used to keep a blog I've I've kind of it's it's difficult nowadays to, to find time to write about interesting things. But I used to have a blog where every time I would find something interesting, or, or even just, you know, trying to get something running, like a piece of software that uh, was new, and, and just trying to get started, like I would have like these Blog posts about like okay this is how you install it or you know this is how you deal with this or or this this is what I found interesting today or here's a new tool that I wrote or whatever um, so yeah you, you just want to kind of help people out because not everybody can afford to buy commercial tools or anything if they're just getting started especially if they're just a student and maybe they don't even know exactly where they want to go and what they want to do yet and this is their way of being able to figure that out
1: yeah definitely important um on a previous podcast we interviewed jessica hyde and she has a quote that she heard from somebody else about sending the elevator back down to kind of help the people that are just starting out to bring them back up with you so i think that that's yeah, really right. important um yeah so totally. what are some current yeah what are some current um i guess challenges that you're solving for right now in the dfr community
0: Yeah, there's, there's still a lot of things uh, to be solved. Uh, Obviously, like from uh, the artifact side, like there's, there's still lots of artifacts and and things that that need to be found. Um, So I I do spend some time uh, looking at different malware samples, trying to see like, are there other ways that we don't know about trying to find uh, things of interest? Um, Basically, just you know, looking at, at memory, trying to figure out if there's, like, other bits that we don't know what they are yet, and how can we get to them and and, and print, print them out in a way that makes sense, trying to figure out, like, you know, what these things are. Um, but another thing that I've been working on for the last, actually, few years is, like, trying to uh, reduce data. Uh, so I, I had I have a, a library that I've been working on for a while, which would allow you to like basically profile systems and kind of figure out and kind of cut out, you know, um, basically the things that aren't interesting, uh, the things that, that are normal executions. basically being able to cut those out, find the outliers, trying to um, to make a little more sense of like where you have, lots and lots of machines that are involved in an incident and just trying to figure out like what are the things that are common to these machines and doing this in a programmatically uh, accurate way and and so um that's still kind of an ongoing project uh that that hasn't been completed yet but yeah there's there's still lots of problems to be solved in the space it's still fairly new
1: I feel like that's an ongoing project that's never going to be completed. You're always going to continue <laughs> adding to it over and over again. Um, it sounds yeah, overwhelming it's to try to organize it all, too.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, the main thing is figuring out, like, how you're going to contain all the data, right? And then how you're going to have them interact with each other. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's ongoing, but uh, it's a lot of fun.
1: So if you're working on a certain challenge or going after a certain artifact and you need help, how do you ask for help um, from your peers or from the community? Uh,
0: So that might start. I might start uh, first talking directly to the other doves of the Volatility Project. But uh, sometimes I'll just go on Twitter and just pose a question like, I'm seeing this. Does anybody else see this? Does anybody know what this is? Uh, I might also write something in the Slack channel that we have for volatility. Um, You know, you try to find people that might actually be able to answer your questions. And so, um, you know, at least on Twitter, like it's it's open to everybody. So you you never know, like you might find some interesting new people that uh, you you haven't previously known about uh, in the community. And. And I th- I think it's actually pretty exciting because like right now like we have a lot more people involved with volatility like if you look at the change log like there's a lot of people that have made contributions over the last uh, year like it, it seems to me that people are getting more and more interested in memory forensics and I think some of these some of the people might be students or they might be related to projects or whatever but I think I think that's great because we're seeing an influx of a lot of people that are interested in this particular topic and it's starting to, uh, to catch on even more. Uh,
1: What do you think is driving that trend?
0: I, well, I think you have a lot of, well, first of all, it'd be crazy. Like if you weren't ever going to look at memory because you have a lot of attacks that they're only manifested within memory. Like some attackers are just not interested in persistence they're only interested in what they can get at that moment, or they know that they're hitting a server or something that's not going to be taken down. And so they don't really need that persistence. Um, so if you didn't have memory, like you have nothing, like you wouldn't even know that there was anything going on on that particular machine. And, and so I think just the fact that you have that those particular cases, like, I think people start to look at it more. And I think also uh, it's, it's more accessible nowadays. I mean, like we have uh, volatility's come a long way from whatever I was first using it with, like version 1.2 or whatever it was, um, 1.1, 1.2, uh, which you know, it, it, yeah, it's it's a lot, a lot of changes have, have been made since then, and in the fact that now we have volatility 3, where you don't need profiles for Windows and whatnot. Like it's you know, it's come a long way. And I think it's, it's easier for people to use. It's it's more uh, accessible. I think also, um, you know, the, there's more and more uh, computer forensics programs. Uh, professors are, you know, nowadays, like you have actual people that have like worked in the field that are teaching the classes, and so they know what's important. And so they're, you know, they're bringing this, they're teaching their students, there's more students that are getting involved. This this is like a newer uh, part of the forensics community. So people just kind of, they want to go with what's new, like, what's, you know, flesh, let's flesh everything out, you know, like, it's, um, I think there's a lot of reasons, like why people are getting more involved in it. But, um, but yeah, those are the things that kind of come to mind.
1: Yeah, I think accessibility is key, like lowering that technical barrier of entry is important. I know for our company in general, we're always focused on making digital forensics more accessible for end users and customers and clients and trying to provide different resources as well so that people aren't as timid when they approach the big word of digital forensics or forensics in general. So I think that that's uh, uh, a lot of people are intimidated by the science behind it. So. It's awesome that we have people like you and everybody else in the community that are giving back, though. That's awesome. So for people who are collaborating, you will throw out all those resources at the end of the video here so that people can find you and find where they can get LinkedIn. But we've talked a lot about work. um, So I want to kind of talk about how people balance it all, right? Because it's so easy to get sucked into a project and then next thing you know, the sun has set and it's time to go to bed and you've worked 14, 16 hours on something because you're just so dedicated to whatever it is. So how do you steer people away from getting that sucked in that deep and then also, you know, preventing burnout eventually in their career?
0: Yeah, I think that's pretty difficult, especially now like with COVID and working from home and, and all of this, you know uh, it's uh, it can be quite daunting and and i I think, like you know I've worked from home for well over ten years now for at different places that I've worked, and um uh, in the beginning it was it was difficult finding that uh balance because uh you you can tend to work more hours than you probably should uh because you're not having that normal break of getting up and going somewhere and then coming back home at a certain time and which is like a nice normal break where you can kind of clear your head when you're on the subway or whatever, you know, uh, coming home. Um, but, uh, you basically, you have to, what I do anyways is, um, and especially now cause like I have a farm and so I you know have to get up and feed everything in the morning, so that's like a natural break. Uh, I also make sure to schedule a lunch. Um, I might have it with friends or whatever, um, but I have a lunch at a certain time. I make, I clear my my calendar. I'm like I'm not going to have anything during that time because I'm having lunch. Um, and then in the evening, like I have to go back out and take care of everything, feed everything again put everybody up for the night. And so those kind of breaks like they force you to like get up and go do something else besides what what you're uh working. And I think um you pretty much have to make yourself do that even if it's like just setting an alarm on your phone or something, you know, just just like go get up, go outside, uh, you know, take a breath of fresh air or something uh, because it really does help. Um obviously if you're just sitting there and you're working on something for like hours on end you're you start to lose uh concentration uh at some point you know you, you you start to go down like a tunnel vision or something on on something and you lose track of of what you're actually trying to accomplish and getting taking a step back actually helps uh at least in my case like you know it helps me like I'll be outside and doing something else and then all of a sudden, it will hit me. Oh, I should have thought about it this way, or I should have done this other thing, or whatever. And then I can come back and and reapproach the problem a little bit differently. But um, but yeah, it is important to to take a step back and and to turn things off and and you know sometimes on the weekends, like I I just I have to turn off my computer and just stay away from it. And this is like a conscious decision, you know, to, uh, snoozing the the slack channels so they're not you know every little thing uh telling you that you know somebody's trying to talk to you or whatever no this is the weekend I, I need to be away from from everything for a little bit it's hard because you think that you're going to miss out on something but you know it, you sometimes you have to think about yourself first
1: yeah I think that's really important I always <laughs> my husband makes fun of me because I'll be out on a walk and I'll just have an aha moment when we're out and i was like i need to do this when i get back or else i'm, I'm gonna lose it <laughs> it's gone forever <laughs> he's like it's so inconvenient we're supposed to be just taking the walk and relaxing and i'm like sorry like you never actually turn off and i was like well i don't think anyone actually ever turns off but it's nice to have like a mental break and just a chain of scenery for sure
2: yeah.
0: um yeah totally. i actually
1: have a separate office um, that I'm sitting in right now because I find it helpful to commute in, even though I'm on the phone pretty much from the time that I leave my house until the time that I get in the office, talking to someone. Just that commute back is at night is my 30 minutes of just me time. Either listening to a podcast or
0: listening to music or something.
1: So definitely helpful.
0: Yeah, yeah totally. So, yeah, and, and and that's actually I'm sure that helps a lot because it's like an it's an actual break that you can't you know like you're. Traveling from here to there or whatever, right? So, like, you you have to take that break.
1: Yeah, and I have a schedule. I have to pick up a tiny human, you know. So that's yeah. helpful too. uh He keeps me on my my toes and my schedule as well. So, I encourage anyone to have a child or pet or farm. <laughs> it will <won't laughs> definitely make you take as many breaks as you need to yeah. avoid burnout for sure. So, can you share a little bit about your farm with us, like? What type of animals you have
0: uh, which one's your um, favorite?
1: I know we don't like to say which ones our favorite, but we always have one right
0: yeah, um yeah, so we have a, a lot of different things here on the farm uh, a lot of different poultry uh we also have uh sheep and goats and uh we used to have alpacas and, and llamas, but now we just have one of each—an like alpaca and a llama. And we pretty much got rid of all the rest of them, but uh, but yeah, it's it's a nice combination of a lot of different things. Um, as far as like sheep go, like we we have uh, Jacob sheep and Shetland sheep. Uh, so yeah, those, those two different types. Yeah, the, the Jacob sheep are pretty cool because they have uh, they can have four horns uh so they're kind of wicked within we get a lot of people that kind of stop out and uh, next to the uh pasture you know because we're on a on a street where they can drive by and so they'll you know stop and take pictures of them or something like that but um uh, are they yeah, friendly it's, it's do, are they fun.
1: are they like photogenic do they like their picture being taken
0: <laughs> uh i don't think they mind the pictures being taken they're not like super friendly, uh, like they don't like being petted or anything, which is good because, I mean, like, especially with rams, like you don't really want them to be friendly because then they'll see you as an equal and then they'll be more likely to butt you, you know, and so you don't really want to encourage that. Um, but, you know, as long as they're a little standoffish, it's it's better for everybody, honestly.
1: I did not know <laughs> that. That's actually, uh, I feel like a good tip for everybody to know. <laughs> Like, yeah. do not befriend your ram or else they will find you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, you said poultry. So, is that like chickens, ducks, stuff like that?
0: Chickens, ducks, geese, uh, turkeys. Um, yeah. Like all of those things.
2: How did you get into Oh,
0: my that? gosh. How, what?
2: Yeah. How did you get into uh, farming? Did it did it run in your family or were you like this is something i you know i want to do and kind of like set a plan to make that happen uh
0: well um so growing up we had uh, a dairy farm and uh i i always wanted to go back to farming and but i didn't want to deal with cattle uh because you know it's they're destructive and you need machinery to deal with them and stuff. And so uh, I wanted something a little bit smaller scale and uh, goats are just fun for everybody. Everybody loves goats. And so I, I just, I thought that would be cool. We have um, over Hossley dairy goats and uh, pygmy goats uh, also, and they're just, they're hilarious, you know, like they're, there's nothing you know like you're never going to not smile when you see these little <laughs> goats like prancing around or whatever it's just I think it's great you know it's it, and mentally for me like to go outside and look at the goats like I think it's you know it's a good break honestly yeah they're always and as far think, yeah yeah and as far as like chickens and stuff like I've always I've always loved chickens uh, you know we, we had chickens when I was little growing up and uh, I wasn't sure I was going to get chickens when we got here, because uh, I was afraid that, you know, everything likes to eat chickens. Everything wants to, you know, destroy them or whatever. But uh, we ended up figuring out a way to, to make it work. And so we have like a chicken barn or whatever to kind of keep them in. And uh, and we have uh, livestock guardian dogs that keep everybody safe and whatnot. So it's, it's been okay having chickens here. So sidebar question
1: yeah i'm I'm just gonna ask if the if you keep them covered but also did like did the geese protect the chickens i've heard that this is a thing
2: oh and the rooster
0: Uh, oh yeah yeah roosters do protect protect uh, the flock uh the geese i think uh yeah they can protect up to a point um they they're definitely good at alerting about things so like (laughs) nothing ever gets on the property without the geese letting you know about it uh the geese and the guineas we have free-range guineas also and they just yeah like every little thing they're just like making noise and you know freaking out and so yeah you know something's up and the chickens would know something is up and the dogs know something is up So then they're like you know what's going on you know (laughs) so yeah
1: so what you're saying is you have an entire security team
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: yeah we, have, <laughs> yeah we have an entire security team and it's uh, composed of multiple layers
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. those, Perfect. those roosters are suicidal they' just like they don't care
0: yeah yeah they they can be they can be brutal we did have uh one mean rooster a, at one point and we didn't keep him around so uh you know <laughs> You can't you can't yeah. have mean roosters. They they can actually hurt you pretty badly.
1: Mm. Yeah, they are. We um actually growing up as well, I was on the dairy farm and we had chickens and we had this one rooster that you could hear his feet just pattering across the ground every time you turned your back. When he turned around, he would just stop acting like he wasn't doing anything. But if he didn't turn around, he was on you, like he was on your back trying to like peck you, scratch you. It's like he didn't last very long either. Nobody told me what happened to him, so I assumed he just went to live with all the other chickens that had left our farm. (laughs) 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 At least that's what I was told. (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Small child, didn't know anything. Um, Yeah. All right. So so, uh, we're recommending that everybody either start a farm or get a pet or have a child or something like that because they bring you a bunch of breaks. And definitely, definitely goats. Goats will bring happiness to your life that's what I gathered yeah. from this. Um, have you always had a really good, like work-life balance before you started your farm or is that something that you really needed to like dive in and work on? Uh,
0: I, well, like I said, like in the beginning, I think it was a little hard, uh, to break away from, from work, but, uh, you know, also, you know, my husband helps with those because like he's, he kind of keeps me preoccupied with other things that are going on around the house and, uh, and And he helps me take breaks also, because like, you know, sometimes you do just kind of get down, you know, face down on something and you're just working and then you forget what time it is or whatever. But I think honestly, like things have have gotten better. Like since we've been on the farm, things have gotten better. But even before that, you know, things were good because uh, he would remind me like, hey, it's five o'clock or six o'clock or whatever. Like maybe you should go outside for a little bit before it gets too dark. Uh, and do some gardening or something like that, you know. Um, so yeah, it it helps if you don't have somebody around to help you with that. Uh, I think you know, setting an alarm on your phone or something like that could could be very helpful for some people.
1: Yeah, especially if you wear like a fitness tracking device or something like that, that will also remind you to like get up
0: and move and get some blood flow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point too. It's you know, everybody has like these these smartphones or whatever that uh that tell you hey you haven't stood up in a while and you probably should right
1: yeah sometimes i get a little angry when mine's like hey it's time to stand up and i'm like i i can't i'm in the middle of something like please don't tell me how to run my life
2: (laughs) oh and when it tells you that bedtime's approaching that just gets me Oh, so I. You're like how? How
1: is it possible?
2: To help me with my sleep, and then at like eight o'clock, seven thirty, eight o'clock. It's like, hey, bedtime's approaching. I'm like, no, it's not. You get out of my life.
0: I oh can't gosh. tell you what to do yeah, it's pretty early.
2: Yeah, I know. Well, it's, I know. It, it and this is the part where hours. all of us
1: judge Jared. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I never make it. it we shame to him for going hours. to bed at eight. It, like, un- start unwinding is what it's trying to do, but it's like it always catches me off guard, and I'm like, nope. No, I just got. So,
1: yeah, what do you do, Jared, to unwind? What is your unwind? bedtime unwind? Do you
2: do you read a book? Do you
1: do some meditation? Um, that, do you throw your ring across the room? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, it's uh, well, so because I'm traveling with a you know the RV, kind of doing the, the trip around the country, um, downtime, sort of downtime, is the the drive in between. So drive days. So like I'll have an eight or ten hour drive and. So that's when I'll get to listen to an audiobook, or you know, maybe try to catch up on some like strategic planning kind of stuff. So it is a little bit of forced downtime there. Um, but yeah, like pretty much, you know, I try to go to the gym um, or do something. Go for a twenty-minute walk in the morning, and then go to the gym for an hour, hour and a half in the evening if I can. Um, other than that, I just I think I look at it more as like larger blocks of effort. So like. I'll plan, like right now, I have to be kind of like all in and focused on just getting this stuff done. And if I'm not, like if I'm out, and and I I struggle with this with like visiting people on the weekends or like meeting up with people in the evenings um, because I feel like I have these other things that have to be getting done. And because I'm not doing them, I'm doing these other things. Um, So for me, I try to do a little bit of that where I do like socialize and, and enjoy that. Uh, But I need to get this stuff done. So I I kind of look at more in like blocks of effort. So this period that I'm in now is just basically dedicated to this. And then um, probably, especially here in the next, you know, month or two, I will be setting more time aside to do the things that I want to do like hiking in the Tetons and seeing Glacier National Park and some of those things. So it will probably, you know, kind of change my schedule a little bit. Um, So long as like that block of effort that I got in gets me to a place where it makes that possible. So that's kind of, kind of how I look at it now. And I don't have other. So you do everything in
1: chunks. Like you do like work yeah. surges and then time off. Okay.
2: Yeah. So like if I can get myself to a position sense. where I'm not, where being away from what I need to do, isn't like slowing anything down, then I feel good about going out and doing those other things. So I really like to put in a lot of effort here and then a lot of focus, like just, I guess, change my focus in, in blocks of, time and i don't have a lot of obligations like i don't have family that i'm traveling with or you know pets or anything like that so um you know I, it's a little bit more tailored towards you know the lifestyle that I, i've got right now so um, that's kind of yeah that's kind of how i do it i just I, I plan for larger blocks of time i suppose and effort yeah um, i
1: feel like my my process is like ritual building i know that sounds so weird and like hippy dippy but that's the person i am um but um for me, like unwinding time is like I read a certain thing. I don't touch my phone on social media. I make myself a cup of tea and, you know, maybe I'll do some yoga or maybe I'll just do some like general sitting in the dark and just pre nap for, for bedtime.
0: <laughs>
1: kind of like yeah. my process yoga. every night.
0: <laughs> yoga actually helps a lot. I, I do yoga in the mornings also. Um, I, yeah. I think it's, it's good that you have like some kind of like you know, physical something or even just like meditation or whatever, like that, that helps a lot.
1: Yeah, so um, I've learned that if I make it a ritual, then I stick to
0: it versus if I'm
1: if I try to say, Oh, I'm gonna go work out in the morning. And this is what I do. It's like, no, this is like, I have to force myself to do it. Because if I don't do it, Mm -hmm. then my whole entire day is thrown off. So it helps with I do my workouts in the morning. I don't know how Jared works out at night. If I work out at night, I am up for like three or four hours. <laughs> I cannot wind down. <laughs> it has to be in, in the morning or else it's not going to happen. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to kind of develop those habits or those consistencies in your life to kind of like create a line of separation in your work-life balance for sure. So Yeah, totally. So, all right. Well, before we get into it, Jared, do you want to go through Experts React? Do you want to explain yeah. to everybody what that is?
2: Yeah, so we're gonna do experts react. We've got a couple of videos that we're going to uh, watch through, and uh, and then just you know general comment, maybe have some laughs. Um, so this first one is from Under Siege Two, and basically this train has been taken over um, by some uh, some terrorists, and now that they're like going back and forth with the government trying to take this over, um, and of course Steven Seagal is is on the train sneaking around as only Steven Seagal could do. Um, but yeah, so they're going to try to, uh, decrypt, um, this, I don't know, these codes in, in some, in memory here. So, uh, give me just a second and we'll get mm-hmm. that switched over. Why the hell do you need power? The phone. Hey, tell him he's working tomorrow. Damn it. Oh no, wait a minute. I'm second third he yesterday morning. Call Antoine. Oh
1: shit, man, you've been shot. No,
0: no, no bullet.
1: No bullet in here. You think this is been shot?
0: This ain't been shot. See here. Access encoded. Gigabyte of RAM should do the trick. We're in. Alright, what do we got?
1: A gigabyte of RAM.
0: Phone book. <laughs> Recipes: chicken cannelloni, fruit salad with crystallized ginger. Sounds
2: good. All the normal oh, stuff yeah. you find in memory. Yeah, yeah. that salad
0: does. I love it. that they could just. I love that they're just like here. We're just going to give it a gigabyte of RAM. You know, it just how to do it. And then there's like some hex code and. <laughs> yeah. So
1: you're telling me that's not how it's actually done. <laughs>
0: I don't think you normally just give it like ram, like right at the last second. No.
1: <laughs> All right. So Sorry. there's a, a piece of experts react where we tried to rate this one being the worst thing you've ever seen. And five being could not demonstrate it better myself. So where do you think this falls in the scale?
0: Oh my God. Oh <laughs> uh, Well, I don't think it's the worst thing I've ever seen, but, uh, I don't know, probably like a two or something like that. Uh. Okay. They
1: yeah, made so it look so easy.
2: They did. They yeah, did, they it's, did it's, it's ran, very right? easy. Which is obviously the first thing you're going to do. And then they were obviously, they were parsing it with, I don't know what they were parsing it with, but I mean, they were, they were pulling out recipes and stuff that people were looking at. That's kind of like, that's that's kind of what you're going for. Maybe not. Yeah, recipes, I mean, but
0: they got something.
2: They got something. They got something. <laughs> I don't know how useful it was for the amount of effort they're putting into, into that scene right there. But I know, you know maybe. They yeah, those recipes did recipes. seem
1: incriminating.
2: Yeah, they went to all that effort to decrypt it. Definitely
0: incriminating. It, it almost seemed like one of those old like uh forensic CTFs, but it's like we didn't we didn't get to the conclusion. You know, like there's probably. There's probably something hidden in the recipe, right? Like there's some steganography or something going on. I, I don't know. No, just, I would it looks kind of <laughs> kind
1: of bland. Yeah. What? How does this end? Does anybody know how this ends? Obviously, Steven Seagal just like goes crazy on the entire train that they're they're on a train, right? Yeah, they're, on, like a
2: they're on a train, and they've got a whole bunch of hostages. So the government's trying to like move satellites and stuff around. Um, I got to go back and and watch the movie because it's been so long since I've actually seen it, but. Well,
1: obviously he became a hero and saved the entire train.
2: Obviously, you think this is being shot? This ain't being shot.
0: <laughs> Do you have another one?
2: Um. Uh. Yeah. So this one is from designated survivor.
1: <laughs> he is upset. I told you. I tried to warn you in the beginning.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I can't remember what actually happens with this one, but only one that's been compromised. It's also. Yeah, I, I, I feel like the easy target usually a frequency analysis should pinpoint any infected modalities that's weird what a pal file foreign foreign president kirkman take any trips overseas lately (laughs) so that one was pretty short but um
0: yeah i i love how like Every time, uh, you know, the tool like magically highlights whatever it is in red, and like really obvious that something is standing out. You know, um,
2: if it's not yeah, red, there's red always there.
0: means bad. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it beats. So
1: that's not how that works either.
0: <laughs> not usually. No.
1: Oh, darn! If life could just be that easy, like <laughs> this is bad. We're going to highlight this. Stay away from this yeah all right so from a one to five scale where are we at
0: uh, well it, it, it's not like the worst thing i've ever seen uh but it's better than the Stevenson Gall thing so i probably like
2: a three oh, better than Steven Seagal. <laughs> A three. oh okay and not the worst thing you've ever seen so i i have some work to do <laughs> yeah
1: And am right, finding I, the best thing or the worst thing Darren? <laughs> Have you seen any shows or movies that are just like so cringeworthy that you had to just turn the channel immediately? Uh,
0: yeah, well, okay, so like, what is it? In, okay, so like NCIS has some things that are kind of bad. I think the most obvious one is like the three hand or four hands on keyboard thing or whatever. Like, I don't know if you've seen that. Where it's like both of them are like typing furiously on the same <laughs> keyboard which is like, you know, how would that even work? <laughs> and then I sometimes um, I
2: wish I had four hands when I'm booting a system and I need to press either F2, F8, F10, or F12. And I don't know which one it is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then you could use four hands.
2: Hit them all. Um,
0: yeah. And then I think like CSI Miami, I think it was like one of those, like, you know, you always take the evidence, like you have the laptop, right? The suspect's laptop. First thing you wanna do, bring it to the lab and plug it into the, uh, you know, onto the internet so that you can start looking at stuff on it, you know? And then all of a sudden the attacker like comes back, you know, gets onto the laptop, wipes out the whole lab, turns off the electricity, whatever. It's like, that would never happen.
1: And also you just tampered all of that evidence. So now we cannot use it. What are you doing?
0: Yeah, oh my god It's like yeah. You, you should be fired for even thinking to do that. Um but yeah. The 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 you know, any of those CSI things, like, you know, I i think they're all right for uh for content. Have you ever watched Mr. Robot? Yeah. That yeah,
2: I good. think
0: that yeah, that is good. And uh yeah, actually um one of the technical um uh the people that were like giving advice uh Brian Kazantian like he was my boss at Panium. so like he oh he, he so knows cool. what he's doing yeah
1: yeah I heard um, that they had like a really great um like technical advisory team on that show mm-hmm. so they had it correct and it was right and I like the timing of it where they showed it in like days versus like 10 seconds like they sh- they kept referring yeah. back to like what attack he was building or working on and how he was getting into systems and stuff like
0: that. Yeah. And actually that since you brought it up, there was, uh, one of the episodes, I forgot what was the name of it, but they did actually use volatility and it was correct. So. Yeah, yeah. That's nice. so, cool.
1: so you screenshot it, you were checking everything to make sure it was right.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I was, I was watching it and I was like, Oh yes, this is awesome. Uh,
1: yeah. They did a really nice job with that.
2: So, well,
1: Well, thank you so so much. Which one was
0: that? Uh, Uh, Mr. Robot. Yeah, Mr. Robot. uh, I forgot which episode it was in, but uh, I can find it for you and send it to you.
2: Okay. Yeah. I I haven't seen Mr. Robot, so I'd like to. It's one of those that I need to go back and watch. I know, I know. Ah,
1: So good so good and i'm also a little nerdy when it comes to like um psychology and mental health and stuff i find it really interesting topic so they also did such a great job on that aspect of it too it was just mm-hmm. perfect yeah i'm sure yeah, a lot I of people really disagree. it but yeah it was good oh so, well thank you so much for joining us on on allocated space we really appreciate it we had time uh, talking to you and learning about all of your different paths to DFIR and the um, work that you're doing and how you're giving back to the community. So we'll be sure to include all of the different resources that you have talked about on the show at the end here um, so that individuals can find you and find all the work that you're doing.
2: Yeah. Are okay. there well thank you any, so much for having me. Yeah are there any last-minute shoutouts, places that you'd like people to go um, and follow you, to find content, anything like that?
0: Oh um yeah i am uh Lita on twitter, so that's g l e e d a uh also you can follow the volatility um uh twitter feed as well. We have a lot of interesting things over there also uh Andrew's very active on volatility his handle is a t t r c um so yeah like anything volatility related like you're gonna find it in those three places for sure.
2: Okay. Sounds good. Awesome. What's the, what's the history of the Twitter handle?
0: Mine. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, it's, you know, back in the IRC days, right? Like you always have to try to find like some interesting handle. And, uh, I just very flippantly just chose, uh, Glita, which is actually uh Hebrew for ice cream. Uh, so I didn't really think it out <laughs> real good and it just kind of stuck uh you know because people identify you by your handle and yeah you don't really want to lose that so yeah. So
1: everyone's right. just referring to you as ice cream all the time.
0: <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's kind of silly but it's stuck and I can't really change it now. If I had thought about it it probably would have been something more interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's interesting. It's also fun. <laughs>
2: Well, thanks again, Jamie, and thanks everybody for uh, checking out our podcast. Please give it a like and subscribe, and we'll see you all next time.